creating that video because A, they're junior highs and you put a camera in front of them and they're super excited. Um, but B, because when they picked up some of the cards, they recognized them. Not as something that their parents dealt with, but something that they dealt with or their friends dealt with. And so it was interesting to have them hold it because some of them are like, this is me. And others are like, I know someone. And, and yet on the flip side, there was a third column of kids that were like, what is this? And you would think, or you would hope, that in our world, that junior highs, we're talking grade eight maximum, we'd have more in the third column being, what is this? Why is suicide or abuse, anxiety, something I know of? And so it was, it was kind of challenging to me in, in making the video when they identified with them or knew friends of them or that they knew YouTube stars that had these anxieties, these mental illnesses. And it was even harder as I talked with a parent later on that one of their children had been cutting, had been thinking about cutting, but they learned it from YouTube. And so with mental illness and mental health, we want awareness to be there. It needs to be there. The conversation needs to be had. But we as the church, we as parents, we as leaders need to make sure that we are explaining and talking through with our children what these things are so that it doesn't become a fad or something that they find on YouTube and it's like, well, if they can do it because they're one of my idols, I could do the same. And that balance is not something that's easy or something we have a lot of experience with. I will constantly say this, humanity is a pendulum. We like to go from one end and then we see we've done something wrong or we've missed out on something. And instead of just nicely balanced, we overcorrect and go to the opposite side. And then we look back and say, hey, we've gone too far, but then we go all the way back again. We have a problem just balancing. We like to overcorrect and overanalyze. And so We've done this with mental health. It is something that we didn't talk about. So we, we've popularized it. We've made it a global conversation, which is wonderful. But now we've gone to the other side when a lot of kids will say they're depressed because they just don't understand what it means to be sad. Or we'll see people say that I am full of anxiety and I have anxiety issues when it's really you're just anxious and hopped up on sugar sometimes, or you're not sleeping well. Like, we, we overbalance things. We can't find the center ground. So that video was made with our junior highs, and they had a lot of fun, and it is, um, it's been a great bumper for the series, kind of setting us up, bringing the tone down a little bit, because this is a somber topic, and uh, it's a vulnerable topic. And that's probably the best word I can use for today is... I don't want to ask your permission to be vulnerable because I'm just going to do it, but be gracious with me today is, is probably the best way to put this. Uh, Pastor Eric started with an overview of mental health, and then we had Kathleen last week and spoke to a women's view, and she talked about her life with postpartum and depression and anxiety and what that looked like for her, and I know there was many of you that it had deeply impacted and touched. And then this week, I'm going to speak on a man's view. And then next week, we're, we're hoping to have um, a psychologist or a sociologist come in to lend some expertise to what we're not, because we need to put this out. As pastors, we don't know everything. I'm sorry. I would like to believe I do. Some of you might like to believe I do. Some of you are glad I don't believe, know everything. Uh, but we don't. And so the best way we can put this is we can journey with you, we can help direct you, we can pray with you, but we don't have all the answers, and sometimes we need to go 
out and beyond, and that's what we're going to do next week. But this week is um, men's mental health. And there's no, there's no way for me to hit every topic because it's so broad and affects people so differently. And there's no way for me to really do a sermon that doesn't just seem like I'm bouncing everywhere unless there's something to stitch it together. And so um, through the coaching of some people in my life, I'm going to do my story. I'm going to carry you through. We're going to see God's work in it, but we are going to hit quite a few mental health things. So this is where I say, I'm going to be vulnerable, and I'm putting this as an invitation to you to be vulnerable. Not as a place to judge me, to take this later, and I'm not going to say anything horrendous. Hopefully I'll still have a job. I believe I will. But it's an encouragement to you to be vulnerable, because I think one of the biggest issues that men have with mental health is fear and shame. I'm going to say it again. One of the biggest issues men have with mental health is fear and shame. We don't want to talk about it because it scares us and we're shameful of it. If I can't control my own life, how can I take care of my family? If I can't take care of my own life, how can I carry on my job? If I, I don't want to believe that I can't do this. And so we carry a lot of fear and shame and we don't want to talk about it as often. And I would go as far to say, and I'll probably come back to this in my sermon, but I would go as far to say, we see more women in church throughout North America than we do men. And I would go as far as to say part of that is because of fear and shame. Men are afraid their weaknesses will be shown, they will be brought up. Jesus calls us to be weak. Jesus calls us to surrender. Jesus calls us to open up. And that is an absolutely terrifying thing for someone who's spent their entire life being told, you need to man up, don't be like a girl, be strong. And I know these come out as stereotypes, typical sayings, they could come out as slander, but, and I'm not meaning them in that way, but I'm putting out the message that we hear as men. And so I think coming to church, coming to Christ, coming to God, to a place where I can be vulnerable and tell someone I am scared, I am weak, I am fearful, I'm doubtful, I'm anxious, we're not ready to. And so we choose the opposite, and we don't. And so I want to start with this. John, chapter 9, verse 3. This is a great story where a man comes to Jesus to be healed. He's blind. And the people around him and the Pharisees say, Jesus, is he blind because he sinned? Is he blind because his parents sinned? And Jesus looks at them, and I love putting humanity in, in biblical characters, because too often we just read this as the Bible is a textbook. But if you put the humanity in it, Jesus literally says, no. He's blind so you can see the work of God. That's it. That, that was the entire reason, not because of what he's done, what his family has done. It's not a history thing. He is blind so that you could see the glory of God in his life. And so what I, what I see here is something we carried out in human history where we saw physical ailments as more spiritual than we were. They were. If someone was blind, if someone was lame, if someone couldn't hear, any sort of physical ailment, our first thought was something spiritual. They're not right with God. They're not close enough with God. They've offended God, and that's why the ailment is there. Now, over time, we've realized you can cure someone's headache. Well, it started with birch bark. Now we have Advil. 
You can cure a common cold. Blindness is generally a genetic disorder. And yet through science, we've been able to give people glasses that they can start to see things, that they can hear things they couldn't do before because of implants. We've realized there's a genetic default, that it wasn't a curse of God other than the curse of sin. Because on this earth, death and decay run rampant. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. He conquered death. It carries no more power. And so while there is death in our, our physical body, and we've come to understand that, not saying we shouldn't pray for things, and we do, and we will continue to pray for healing, but we understand that there are medical remedies that can take care of things, that it's not a person's stance with God that has caused their ailments. Because if a child is born deaf, we don't blame the child, sin. Now we start looking at the parents but we know it's a genetic thing. They didn't come out that way because of a sin. On the flip side, though, I see now we've kind of changed that to mental health. If someone has some sort of mental instability or um, even sometimes cognitive development issues or they're not understanding, our first thought is, well, they haven't prayed with God, they're not right with God, and that's why there is something demonic spiritual going and in their head. And yes, those elements do exist, but we now do understand that mental health is an issue that we, we can cure in some cases. That counseling, that talking, that openness, that vulnerability, that there are ways that we can take it out of being hyper-spiritual and something into the realm where we can actually show the glory of God, where we show mercy, compassion, and care on people. Because too often we hear something and we get afraid and with fear and shame, we run. That's our natural response. And too often within the church, when we talk about mental health, and our culture is so horrible for this as well, we run. We ignore. We don't know what to do, and so we're fearful. And then we get shameful afterwards. We're like, I didn't know how to address them. I didn't know how to talk to them. I didn't know what to do, so I didn't want to. So we need to know, and we need to tell everyone that it's okay not to be okay that we might show the glory of God to them in their lives by grace, compassion, mercy, friendship, and love. So this is a survey of mental health through my life. So let's start with our first slide, and it, Richard Rohr says this. The skills that take you through the first half of your life are entirely unhelpful for the second half. If we're honest, the skills we learned in relationships, career building, and family creation are completely self-focused on what we want. These are skills that push us forward, that we needed to construct the environment we wanted to be in. If you think about it, you're like, what type of car do I want to drive? What type of family do I want? What type of spouse do I want? Where do I want? It's very me, me, me. What do I want? Want, want. Which is natural and normal. We're in a building phase of our life. The second half of our life is, meant, is about sustaining what we've created, about maintaining the relationships, the family, and the career. Yet we seem to have stayed on this build track. We haven't stopped pushing for the next. We don't know how to maintain and sustain a happy arrival. Shauna Nyquist puts it this way. We have been raised to build, build, build. Bigger is better, more is better, faster is better. It has never occurred to us in church building or other parts of our life that someone would intentionally keep something small or deliberately do something slow. Her, her metaphor was this. In churches, we, the saying is you put out more chairs so we can fill them. So we've got lots of chairs so that we hope people will come. 
But the thing is, once things get too busy, once things get going too fast, we're like, guys, I'm just so busy with the church. The people are just here. We've got the programs. We've got the events. And then we've got to do this. And we got, i got to lead worship. And I'll get Eric to do communion because i got to preach. Like, we get busy. And then we're like, oh, man, how did this happen? And her point is this. Someone put out the chairs. You chose to put out that many seats that there could be that many options. You chose to continually build and let things keep going and growing. And often we do that in our lives. We're set on build, build. I need more, next level, next level, next level, next level. And we don't stop to say, this is good. I can sustain this and be healthy and happy. And for my mental stability, this is where I need to be. Whereas like, well, I need the one next, the one next. Honestly, I'm doing it even in, in our car situation. We had a car, we crashed it. Stupid deer. Then we got a really crappy car because we're like, we're going to save money. But then we had a baby and we're like, well crappy cars and babies aren't the best idea. So then we got a newer car, but then we're like, now that we've got presents and the baby, baby, but then the baby stuff, and then my stuff, and then the dog, you know what? I should probably get another car, like a bigger car. Like, I'm constantly going for bigger. I can't just learn to sustain and small. And often my life does that. My wife tells me to stop and slow down because I'm like, okay, I could go lead worship here, and I want to speak here, and like, I want to add all these things. And she's like, or you could care for your church and your son, and me, meaning her. I should probably care for my wife, too. And I think that's where we slip out of understanding mental health in our own lives, because we're like, I just got to go. I'm just tired. I'm just anxious. I'm just depressed. I'm just drained because I need the next step. I'm constantly building, trying to add more instead of just stopping and sustaining. And so honestly, actually, let me say this. It, when the slides come up with the cell phone number on there, if you have questions that you would like us answered, please feel free to text them in at any time. But about this building, honestly, this couldn't be a deeper truth or example in my own life. The skills I developed to survive my adolescence and early adulthood are actually a hindrance to my current stage of life. The desire to show my worth through what I could accomplish and endure, has formed in me a mental state that is never happy with the current. The desire to show my worth through what I could accomplish and endure has formed in me a mental state that is never happy with the current. I need more. I need to tweak. I need to build. I don't rest and settle well. So here's where my story starts. I was born to two parents who split when I was two or three. I was raised by my grandparents, but here's the thing. I don't remember missing my dad, but I do remember a fear of losing my mother. And so when I say dad or you talk to me and I say, hey, here's my dad, that's my stepdad. And I've called him dad since I was about seven. But when that new family started to come about, when Peter started dating my mom, I threw tantrums because I thought he was taking my mom away. I started having a fear. And as I joined this family, I got two stepsisters. I would lash out in these massive temper tantrums with curse words and just flailing and such passionate anger that my dad and my grandpa would bear hug me with arms and legs to hold me down till I could calm down. They thought it was just who I was. So I got this new family, and then I remember my biological dad calling to say, hey, Peter's going to adopt you. And so on the phone, I learned that I was going to be adopted. He's like, is that okay if I just, I don't remember a conversation. I just remember, Peter's going to adopt you, so I'm not going to be your dad anymore. Okay. Sure. 
So I took on a new last name. That's where Vinas comes from. I was originally Nathaniel Beatty. And so my life keeps going. No one thinks much of things, but my mom gets in a car accident around the time I'm about 10-ish. And this is where things really started to change for me. I became numb. I remember my sister's crying, but I have favorite memories from my mom's car accident. Now, to give you an idea of this car accident, she needed to be pulled out by the jaws of life to cut the car open. She has hearing aids. She's lost her sense of taste and smell. Uh, like, it took her out. And she didn't live with us for months because she needed rehab. But I remember I got to go to Burger King, and trolls were a big thing at that point. So I got little trolls to put on my pencils, and they had the fun little hair. And I remember she was in part of the rehabilitation, was making leather products. I'm like, cool, mom's making leather wallets and belts. And these are my memories. They're joyful because I numbed myself. And so Rich Van Pelt and Jim Hancock say this in their handbook for teenage health and crisis. There was a time when it was generally believed that emotional numbness following a trauma was a sign of resilience. The growing suspicion among researchers today is that people who exhibit emotional distance after trauma may be more disposed to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But here's the thing, I looked like a hero. I was the boy, I was strong. I didn't cry, I held on. But what I did was I repressed a lot of things. So as I went into elementary school, my mom made pajamas, uh, which sounds like a great... Actually, they weren't pajamas. It was a tracksuit, but honestly, it looked like pajamas. <laughs> like, she made me this tracksuit, and it was this neon blue and yellow and red biplanes. I thought my mom was great, and that she made me this, and I wore it to school, and oh my gosh, I was ridiculed. Because, like, why are you wearing your pajamas to school? This was before la lazy teenagers, when it wasn't cool to wear... Yeah. Then in grade five, I patted a friend on the back because that, he had a great idea. And what came from that was the next five years of getting into fights, like physical fist fights and bloody noses because people called me a homo and thought I was gay and picked on me for that. So I repressed more. By the time I got to high school, I was so tired of being picked on and hurt that to continue to numb the pain, I decided to self-medicate. If I become one of you, you can't make fun of me because I'm just like you. What that means is in self-medication, pornography, drugs, sex. My high school years I don't remember because of the amount of marijuana I smoked. And yet this is the thing that most people do and hide in fear and shame, they self-medicate not in a public way, but in a hidden way, because no one knew. My family didn't know. I mean, there's certain things you pick up on, but they didn't know to the extent. And so here's the thing when you self-medicate. You can make a drug, a way to anesthetize yourself out of anything, whether it's working out, whether it's binge-watching TV, working, having sex, shopping, volunteering, cleaning, dieting, any of these things can keep you from feeling pain for a while. That's what drugs do. And unlike a drug, or, uh, and used like a drug, sorry, over time, shopping or TV or work or whatever will make you less and less able to connect to the things that matter, like your own heart and the people you love. 
That's another thing drugs, another thing drugs do. They isolate you. And honestly, I didn't realize uh, the effects that my self-medication was doing on me because I don't remember high school, but even in a conversation with my sister last night, she's like, yeah, I took piano for years. And I'm like, you took what? She's like, yeah, you used to drive me. I was like, what? I was numbing myself from the amount of pain I had or that I was feeling that I don't remember parts of my history anymore. And the thing is, most of us have a handful of these drugs, and it's terrifying to think of living without them. It's terrifying, wildly unprotected, vulnerable, staring our wounds right in the face. But this is where we grow, where we learn, where our lives actually begin to change. And so I did that throughout high school. I self-medicated. I numbed myself to the world. I numbed myself out of church. I was really angry. I started cutting a bit. I did everything that we would see in a mental health spectrum. If we are honest and take a poll, the amount of men that struggle with pornography but keep it hidden, that's the way they numb themselves. The way they check out from their family because they are overburdened and tired, they are working more hours than they need to, especially with the advent of the cell phone and the computer. We now work from home almost as much as we work from work. And in a lot of cases, things have swapped. We're more social at work because it's out of an environment we feel safe because there isn't as many expectations on us. And when we leave, the expectations stay at work. And so at work, we're more social and more fun-oriented and, and not always working as hard as we can. And then we get home, and once the burden of paying the bills, taking care of a family, uh, maintaining a relationship starts weighing down on us, we look for ways to get out. And we're like, well, I got this extra work I need to do that I couldn't finish. And so once I hit 19, 20-ish, once my parents started having conversations with me of, so you know, it's okay to just work at the grocery store. Somebody, somebody needs to do that. We need garbage truck drivers in our, our world, not knocking these professions, but they weren't expecting me to go to high school or go beyond high school. It took me five years to do it. I didn't make it through. They, so they're like, you know what? If you just can get a job, that would be good. But that started kicking something in me, and my parents started going to a different church, and, and the young adult pastor invited me out, and I was like, no, no, I'm not going. I've done the church thing. I'm out. And then for whatever reason, I showed up one night, and I knew the songs, and I just wept. God just wrecked me. So I started being a part of the church, and I started uh, being a youth leader, and I, I started doing all these things and becoming connected and, and playing on worship, and my life started to clean up, and I, I stopped the drugs, the sex, the pot, all of that. Faith started to grow in my life. But along with faith became that fear and shame because I'd numbed out all of the pain. I now exposed myself to it because I took away all the things I was hiding from. And the unfortunate thing is, I think, as a people of faith, we tend to forgive, but we rarely forget. Let me say that again. As a people of faith, we tend to forgive, but we rarely forget. We are quick to say that Christ doesn't condemn you, neither, neither will I. But then it's like, well, but you remember that time? I mean, I've forgiven you, but I just want to make sure we remember that as we think about this person. 
They might do that again or they're predisposed to that. And, and so I want to throw this out at you because I think we need to be people that forget with our forgiving. So Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, they will not need to teach their neighbor anymore. They will not need to teach one another anymore. They will not need to say, know the Lord, and that's because they will know me. From the least important of them to the most important, all of them will know me, announces the Lord. I will forgive their evil ways. I will not remember their sins anymore. If we look at Psalm 103.12, it says this, He has removed our sins from us. He has removed them as far as the east from the west, and the east and the west will never connect. So if God is able to say, this is your past, we can leave it there. You have sought forgiveness, I have given. Let's move on to the new creation that you are. We need to make sure that as God's people, we're doing the same thing. So as I was going through this fear and shame, being a part of the church, we need to come to 2 Timothy, which says God gave us his spirit. And the Spirit doesn't make us weak and fearful. Which means the people of the church should not make you weak and fearful. If the thought of being honest and vulnerable makes you weak and fearful in the church, that's a problem. You need to be able to come to, whether it's the pastors or other people in the church, to be vulnerable and say, this is where I'm hurting. This is what's gotten wrong. This is where I need help. This is how you can pray for me. But if you hide yourself, if you try and medicate or numb or do whatever because you are fearful and shameful, we need more of God's spirit in our church. So he says, God gave us a spirit. The spirit doesn't make us weak and fearful. Instead, the spirit gives us gives us power, and love. He helps us control our behavior. Now, I've underlined that last part. He helps us control ourselves or our behavior because too often we want to pray to God like a vending machine and say, God, here's my problem. Fix it. And God says, no, I'm here to be with you, to journey with you, to grow with you. I will give you my spirit so that you are powerful, that you are covered in love, and I will help you control yourself. But that is a large part of mental health is we want the pill, the drug, the, the fix. Let me go back to my life how I was without actually addressing the problem. And God says, I'm not going to fix it. I will help you journey with it so that you grow and strengthen and develop. And I think that is a greater and more powerful word rather than God waving a wand and saying, it's done, it's over but saying we're going to journey with this so now you are stronger and can then show that love, that compassion, and that care, that glory of God being the good Samaritan, however you want to term it, to other people. The kingdom is being built within you and in you. Not just, let's go, I can't snap with my right hand, I'm sorry. There we go. 
So as a baby Christian, and that's what I constantly refer to myself, because I'm in the church at 1920, and I had friends that had grown up in the church their entire lives, and I'm like, yeah, I've had sex. They're like, you what? You did that before marriage? I'm like, yeah, I, uh, I got high. They're like, oh no, we don't even do cigarettes. Like we, I remember having a party where we threw out John Mayer CDs because the song Your Body is a Wonderland was on it, and it was like this big purge everything that couldn't be godly, and I'm sitting there following along and be like, I'm a baby Christian. I don't want to speak out to some of your craziness right now. Or, and they were, I was fearful and shameful. And I was even more fearful that I hadn't fully gotten over my self-medication. God was helping me. God was growing with me. But I was fearful to admit that I still struggled. That was still a temptation. And that's the, the problem with temptation is we often paint it as a negative. Oh, tempt, that's an ugly thing. Temptation's ugly. No, you're only tempted by something if you think it's beautiful or flavorful or delicious or you like it. I'm not tempted by a sprinkled donut because it looks gross. I'm tempted by a sprinkled donut because it's got fun little bouncy sprinkles that crunch in my mouth. It's exciting. And the reality is that's where temptation sits. If you have been tempted by something, there's a really good chance you're going to stay tempted by it the rest of your life. But are you willing to come to God with it? Are you willing to come to your friends and family about it that when you're weak, you can say, I'm vulnerable, I'm hurting, I need help to get the help you need so that you don't fall back into your own temptation? So as I went through this fear and, and shame and anger still was building up inside of me, and, and Rich Van Pelt and Jim Hancock say this about anger, behind most anger is fear. Fear of failure, fear of losing control, fear of being victimized, looking bad, missing out, being wrong, being wronged, ignored, dismissed, diminished, disrespected, fear of abandonment, pain, or dying. So men, check yourself. Angry dads is a common thing that we know of in our culture. You can check out YouTube. There's tons of pictures of it, videos. But check yourself when you're angry. Why are you angry? Men lash out usually in a violent way out of anger, and it's, it's terrifying, and it's wrong, and it has no control. And why do we not have this control? Honestly, it's because we're fearful. We're shameful. We don't want to fear out. So fight or flight kicks in, and if we're not fleeing, we're fighting, and it comes out. And the reality is most anger is our fear. What are you scared of being seen? What are you scared of letting go? Because honestly, I went to Bible college thinking that's what I needed to do, and yet I lived this double life where I had Ontario Nate that still had all the sin and temptation that God was working with, and I ran out to BC, and I just decided I'm a new person, and nobody knew this other half. And so I still have the numbness. I still have the natural desire to self-medicate. And there's some sort of burning anger, fear issue inside of me. So I get into Bible college. I, I meet a girl. I get engaged. And here's where the big trauma kicks in. She canceled her wedding. So I did what I always did. I numbed myself. My plan was finish Bible college, get hired on a church, and away I go. And that's what I did. I finished out our plan. 
But the problem is, after about two years, I couldn't numb myself anymore, and I found that these temptations that I had before while I was in ministry, drinking became okay again. Swearing became okay again. Pornography became a temptation again. But I had no friends. I was the only young adult in the church, and I was running young adults in junior high and senior high in worship. And so I burnt out, and this is where the major trauma happened in my life. Sean and I quest says this, I can't hear the voice of love when I'm hustling. All I can hear are my own feet pounding the pavement. All I can hear are my own feet pounding the pavement and the sound of other runners about to overtake me and beat me. And so that's what I did. I was pushing as hard as I could as I was breaking apart inside, trying to beat others, get ahead of others, volunteer in the best way I could so that I would be known, I would be great, and and just keep going and keep going. And what ended up happening was I collapsed and I had to step down from ministry. I had to go through a program of restoration and what the district did or the POC did was say, you can't lead worship, you can't pray with people, you can't lead a small group. My entire identity had been wrapped up in my job and it was stripped of me. I couldn't run anywhere because I was already in BC and my family was in Ontario. And I broke down. I broke down to the point that I called my mom. (laughs) Called my mom. I'm in my mid-20s by this point. I called my mom every morning for two weeks straight in tears. Because I didn't know what to do. And then I remember having a conversation with my dad. And I said, I thought about dying. I didn't go through with it, but I thought, what if I just drive my car off? What if I just go? And that scared me. That scared me a lot, that I had now hit that place and that I was so broken and so empty that the numbing couldn't work anymore, the self-medicating wasn't there. I couldn't even support myself. A family in the church actually took me in and gave me one of the rooms that their kids had been in, and I lived with them for two years, but I didn't even pay rent for the first four because I couldn't even support myself. I had just collapsed and crumpled and spent more time crying and calling my mom than I would like to admit. And so depression and suicide there. And honestly, if I hadn't have been vulnerable to the pastor at the time, if I hadn't have been vulnerable to this family, I probably would have fallen back into that self-medication of drugs, sex, alcohol, and gone off the deep end. But being in their house, while I was not strong enough to support myself, I knew the rules of the house. So I didn't end up in those places. They actually protected me. And one of the best things that came out of this situation is the lack of fear and shame. Because I had nothing to hide anymore. If people wanted to mock me and be like, you fell out of mystery, great, I came forward. You know what, you're like falling apart. Yeah, here's all of my dirt. What do you have on me anymore? I have confessed it all publicly and I was so free because I was not scared of being found out. 
If you want to talk about freedom in Christ, if you want to talk about freedom in your life, it is that amount of vulnerability that you've given to someone else and confessed to God that if someone finds something out about you, you go, okay. And? You are not fearful of people anymore because you haven't hidden anything. Shauna Nyquist says this, years ago, a wise friend told me that no one ever changes until the pain level gets high enough. And that seems entirely true. The inciting incident for life change is almost always heartbreak. Something becomes broken beyond repair, too heavy to carry. In the words of recovery movement, unmanageable. And so here I was, uncontrolled with overwhelming emotion. I, I, I tried to fix things that I couldn't fix. I blamed people for taking my job and my life. I, I thought about suicide, and the, the beautiful but horrible thing is the majority of suicidal people regain balance and choose life. It is the fear of suicide that brings them back. A great way to, a, example of this is a cop was called to a, a jumper, and they're on the bridge about to jump, and he comes up, and he's like, get down! And the guy turns to him like, stop, don't shoot! Somehow he was scared of being shot, even though he was up there to jump. He was able to change, because the reality is, most people regain balance. And so here's how I'm going to wrap this up. I want to speak on suicide a little bit, and then we're going to wrap it up, and there's a few questions. But Rich Van Pelt says this, following the suicide of one of their best friends, several middle school guys came to me to confess that he had shared his plan to kill himself and asked them to keep his secret. They did. And in the process, they loved their friend to death. Our challenge is loving our friends to life, and sometimes that means blowing the whistle on them. Don't assume more responsibility that is yours to you assume. Don't assume more responsibility than is yours to assume. Recognize your limits and involve others with more knowledge and experience. I have this acronym called SLAP that we'll put up. Slap is this, a specific plan. So if you hear of someone thinking about suicide or cutting themselves, you need to look at this. Do they have a plan? Are there lethal means within that plan? Is it available to them? The availability of the method, if it's a car, do they have access to the car? If it's an like whatever they think it is, do they actually have it? And what's the proximity of a helping resource? Meaning, have they isolated themselves so that there is no way to get in and help them or is there someone who could step in? So here's how my story wraps up. That, we can just leave that up for a little bit so you can memorize that. My story wraps up with this. After my crash, after my breakdown, I started getting counseling. I found love with my wife. We plan to get married. And once all of that kind of self-medication stuff had been swept away, once the numbness had been opened up, it let through what was really the problem, and probably something I've been suffering with my entire life. Anxiety and panic attacks. 
When my wife and I, before we got married, we bought a car, because that's what you do. I hyperventilated and cried like a small child in the parking lot for the fear of signing a car loan. That night, I crawled into bed and I googled over and over, can you return a car, can you return a car, can you return a car? I was paranoid and terrified of what I just brought myself into. As we planned to get closer to our wedding, which we were doing in Ontario, and somehow my mother-in-law planned all four of us, which is all planned for us, which is magical and wonderful. I literally just had to show up. But I began to have anxiety attacks at work, and I would lock myself in my office or in a bathroom, and I would cry three to four times a day. It was only after talking to a doctor and getting more counseling did we recognize what was going on. And so to this day, and probably for the rest of my life, I take an anxiety pill. So the level of crazy you see is already calmed. <laughs> so Matthew 9, 12 to 13 says this. Speaking of Jesus, he said, So he said, those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice, he's quoting Hosea. I have not come to get those to think that they are right with God to follow me. I have come to get sinners to follow me. You need to be vulnerable. You need to see the fear and shame in your life, and you need to expose it to people you trust. You need to know that the great physician is there. You need to be able to let him speak into your life and not self-medicate and numb. I need to put the caveat that we don't have all the answers, we, but we can help journey and direct. Being vulnerable is a huge part of the journey and generally the starting point. If you can't be honest, if you can't be open up, then God or someone else can't speak into your life because you're still holding something back. I need to point out that we believe, and I, I, this is a full statement of our staff and your leadership of the church, we believe our mental health affects our spiritual health. We believe our mental health affects our spiritual health. So if you are fearful of being in your own headspace, how can you invite God into it? If you are numbing yourself so you don't have to think of what your problems, your fears, your shames are, if you can't even handle it yourself, how can you invite God into it? How can you engage the church with it? Because you are hiding and pulling yourself away and you are self-medicating and numbing yourself just as I did. Avoidance doesn't solve the issue. Keeping yourself busy, self-medicating, or denial, none of these bring about the healing and health God has set before you. He is the great physician, the spirit is the comforter, but you cannot bring your needs to him if you cannot identify them. He is the great physician, the spirit is the comforter, but you cannot bring your needs to him if you cannot identify them. So this is my survey of mental health. This is men's view, whatever you want to term it. This is my story, and I hope it's not too scattered. But I've dealt with pornography. I have dealt with drug addiction. I have dealt with such fear and crippling shame. I have dealt with anxiety and panic attacks. I have dealt with suicide and depression. And I can easily say that every one of those is listed somewhere in this room. Not necessarily in the same person, but that is the reality is that we deal with these things. And so as men, 
as women who have men around them. Teach them, show them ways to be vulnerable. Let go of the fear and shame so that the issues can be addressed and you can be a stronger person.